Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Concord Matters. Here on KFUO AM Radio, the messenger of the good news, I am this week's host, Pastor Joshua Shear, Senior Pastor at Our Savior Lutheran Church here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, coming to you from the snow-covered high plains out here in Wyoming. All right, so Concord Matters, we go through the Book of Concord each week, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, confessing our Lutheran faith before all who would hear, uh, as our forefathers did before the Emperor, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor at Augsburg. So we have a couple guests with us today. Pastor Matt Moss, who is pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church of Klinger and St. Paul Lutheran Church of Redland, Iowa. Pastor Moss, good to have you with us today. Good to be with you. All right, and we also have Pastor Mike Grevy, who's pastor of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Golden, Illinois. Pastor Grevy, good to have you with us. Pastor Shear, good to be with you today. Indeed. All right. So we are a call-in show as well, so we would welcome calls in to ask questions or so forth. Uh, in the uh, metro area there of St. Louis, 314-821-0850. Um, that would be also for anyone else calling in. Uh, or you can call a toll-free number locally, 800-730-2727. So please take note of those numbers as you are listening today. So today we're going to start talking more from the apology, that is the defense of the Augsburg Confession. And we're in Article 4, and then we're going to cover that, but Article 4 first of the Augsburg Confession, so this is what it'll all be defending. It says this, Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. Again, that's Augsburg Confession, the fourth article, the foundational article, the central article of the Lutheran faith, the Christian faith, actually, as we would put it. Also, today we're going to go through some rather technical things. And so for our listeners listening in, you're going to hear a lot of kind of technical words. Why is this necessary? Well, first of all, we're a show dedicated to going through the Book of Concord, so this is what the Book of Concord says. We're going to have to go through it. We'll start trying to explain some of these technical details and so forth as best we are able. And also, why would this be necessary? Well, doubt is the enemy of faith. And so a lot of the technical things we're going to talk about today were designed by medieval theologians and then Reformation-era counter-Reformation theologians to be uh, doubt creators, destroying the faith. And Lutherans do not want you to despair, but they want you to hear the, the comfort of the gospel and believe it. So that's why we're going to go through these things. So starting out in paragraph 12 of the Augsburg, or the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 on Justification, paragraph 12. We are using the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, available from Concordia Publishing House. If you haven't got one, go online, cph.org, look up Concordia Reader's Edition, 
Go ahead and buy one. Good stuff. You won't regret it. Paragraph 12 starts out by saying, In this opinion, there are many great and deadly errors, which would be too boring to list. Let the careful reader think only about this. If this is Christian righteousness, what difference is there between philosophy and Christ's teaching? If we merit forgiveness of sins by these acts, of what benefit is Christ? If we can be justified by reason and the works of reason, what need is there of Christ or regeneration? All right, so, Pastor Moss, if you could start us out, you know, it starts out with, in this opinion. Well, which opinion? It's referring back to what paragraphs 9 through 11 are talking about. Can you kind of give us a brief rundown of what they're talking about here, in this opinion? Yeah, we always have to uh, define our pronouns and uh, find their antecedents when we pick up in the middle of something. Uh, so, earlier in this article, uh, the Lutherans had uh, explained some of how the Roman Catholics had responded to their article on justification, which you read earlier, and they start outlining the false teaching uh, of the scholastics or the Roman Catholic scholars of Luther's day and for many centuries before. And kind of the, the core nugget of this opinion that we start with is that in some small way, human reason naturally understands the law, uh, that the law of God and our human reason have some similar judgment written in the mind and on the heart by God. So, insofar as the Ten Commandments require a type of outward civil work or civil righteousness, like not stealing, not murdering, telling the truth and not lying, uh, as far as the law says those things, the reason of mankind agrees, and in some sense will attempt to abide by those laws. Um, the problem here, or this, this opinion going from just kind of a healthy look at how laws work in society, is that these scholastics have then brought it into the law of God, and that we can actually achieve righteousness by our reason. Not just being a good citizen but actually being righteous before God and meriting or earning the forgiveness of sins, not on account of Christ, but on account of our human reason, doing what it thinks is naturally good. And so this is where we're going to kick off and show how um, there are many deadly errors in that type of opinion, uh, but then the apology focuses here just on one of them. All right, so, th so they are going to take the truth, which is human reason has some ability to do good in this world, has a little bit of sense of what's right and what's wrong, because God put it there through the law. But they're going to take that and then use that as proof that humans then can earn God's favor, his, his grace and so forth, and forgiveness of their own sins, correct? Precisely. All right, so that's what we're dealing with here. That is what we're going to contest against. That's what the Lutherans are going to confess against, the idea that, well, you know, human reason really can motivate us and keep us on the right side of God. So in other words, uh, Pastor Grevy, in other words, this is kind of what the question in paragraph 12 is, what, what need do we have of Jesus then? I mean, if we can just do it, why do we need Jesus? 
we would not need him for salvation if we could do it by uh, the works of righteousness, which we have done. Um, so we could try to make, uh, if Jesus is simply turned into an example by which we have to live, for, exa- for instance, an example of morality, which he certainly is, but if that's all he is, um, and we just try to copy him and do exactly as he did, and by our works attain salvation, then there is no need for Christ. Uh, there is no need for his atonement for sin on the cross. And that's the... Uh, the confessors oftentimes use the phrase, merit the forgiveness of sins. That is a key phrase that the confessors use. And so these works, um, if they are believed to merit the forgiveness of sins, um, are actually then condemning works. We're condemned by them uh, rather than uh, them being good works, which God does command of his people, uh, but nonetheless works that cannot, uh, by which we cannot and do not merit the forgiveness of sins. And that's the work of Christ uh, that needs to be credited to us, the forgiveness of sins and our justification and therefore our salvation. And this is exactly why it talks about um, this is great and deadly errors. I mean, they're not using uh, toned down language for this kind of stuff, because honestly, if you're going to believe that you can work and earn your salvation, even in the slightest bit, what need is Jesus? And of course, then we're now robbing glory from him. We're now teaching him properly about what he has done. We're teaching him properly about who we are and what sin has done to us. And so these are great and deadly errors, and they cause great problems. Precisely. Now, it mentioned also yep. a little bit there about um, regeneration. You know, uh, this is that uh, born-again language, or born-from-above language, as you see in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, or <clears throat> Titus chapter 3, the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, as, as Paul talks about it. That, of course, the Scriptures talk about that natural man doesn't understand these things, Therefore, natural man doesn't understand, you know, can't earn God's favor. Uh, But instead, there has to be a whole new birth, a whole new regeneration, a whole new renewal that needs to happen uh, at God's working in us. So just take note of that as we move on to paragraphs 13 and 14. From these opinions, the matter has now reached the point that many ridicule us because we teach that a righteousness different from philosophic righteousness must be sought. We have heard that some preachers, after setting aside the gospel, have explained Aristotle's ethics instead of a sermon. Not that such men err if those things are, if those things the adversaries defend are true. For Aristotle wrote about civil morals in such a learned way that nothing further about the topic needs to be demanded. All right. <clears throat> sermon fodder here, talking about what's actually being preached in pulpits, Lutherans care about what's actually being done amongst the people. This is not just about the confession of the truth. It's not just about some kind of ideas and so forth. This is also about what's actually happening amongst the people. And so you see here the little critique of, you see that some preachers have set aside the gospel. Now, Pastor Moss, what? this is obviously not what a sermon should be, right? <laughs> Right. Um, you, you shouldn't get up and, and talk about Aesop's fables, Aristotle's ethics, um, last week's movie, uh, you know, the, the, the latest blockbuster. Uh, what's, what's the source and the substance 
and the subject of a sermon. What's it supposed to be, according to Lutherans? Well, the sermon is supposed to be a uh, true exposition of, of God's Word, both law and gospel, uh, calling sinners to repentance for having broken the law in thought, word, and deed, and then also proclaiming uh, the true gospel, the forgiveness of sins that is for Christ Jesus' sake. Uh, so, in, in short, it's uh, repent and believe. Uh, repent of your sins and believe in this Jesus Christ, death for sinners and his resurrection from the grave, uh, of which, by the way, Aristotle says nothing. Well, of course not. He, Aristotle was a pagan, so he wouldn't <laughs> know anything about Christ or anything about true righteousness. So, so even in a sermon, like, I mean, Aristotle's ethics would probably be pretty practical, um, but yet you're saying that that kind of stuff is really not what a sermon's about then, right? Correct. All right, good. Well, this is this is the truth, and this is what we confess before the world. And obviously in the Reformation day, there were sermons being preached that were really not sermons at all. Of course, great phrase there, after setting aside the gospel. So, um, you want to hear the gospel? Go to a Lutheran church. Don't want to hear the gospel? You want to hear something about Aristotle's ethics? Go elsewhere. All right, so let's look at paragraph 15 and 16 now. We see books published in which certain sayings of Christ are compared with the sayings of Socrates, Zeno, and others. It's as though Christ had come to deliver certain laws through which we might merit forgiveness of sins, as though we did not receive this freely because of his merits. Therefore, if we here accept the teaching of the adversaries, that by the works of reason we merit forgiveness of sins and justification. There will be no difference between righteousness of philosophers, or certainly of Pharisees, and of Christians. All right. So Christ as a new lawgiver, uh, that he's come to bring uh, some new certain laws that need to be brought in through which we would merit the forgiveness of sins. This is the opponents, the adversaries, teaching so the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so with this, uh, Pastor Grevy, what's wrong with picturing Christ as a new lawgiver? If Christ is a new lawgiver who comes to give us things to do by which we can merit the forgiveness of sins, uh, then we're right back under the condemnation of the law. We're right back to this works righteousness, uh, which we've touched on a little bit already today. So if, if Jesus is just one who comes and gives us some new laws, uh, moral ones, uh, some ethics to follow, uh, some things to do in order to merit the forgiveness of sins, then we're really right back to where we started, and we actually don't need Christ's atonement for our sin on the cross, and we don't need uh, his forgiveness. But as the uh, confessors talk about in, an, in another place uh, in the Book of Concord, Christ, deter Christ interprets the law spiritually. That is, he reveals uh, the, the depth of the law in the New Testament when he comes to be, um, no, not merely um, about outward obedience uh, and not merely about words, uh, but about the thoughts, about the very condition of man's heart. And so... Um, Christ is not Christ is the lawgiver, but he's not a new one. Uh, he's always uh, he's been the lawgiver. He's the same lawgiver 
Uh, he gives the law in the Old Testament, and he gives it in the New Testament. He's the same God. Uh, there are not two different gods, one in the New Testament giving new laws uh, to override the old laws in the Old Testament. He is one God, and he is the lawgiver. Uh, but even as the lawgiver, he's also the fulfiller of the law. And so he does what we haven't done and can't do um, uh, in terms of saving ourselves and meriting the forgiveness of sins. He wins it for us by his work on the cross. Yeah, so he merits it for us, not we merit it, and so forth. Exactly. Um, Pastor Moss, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think it's just... uh brilliant and even uh, a little amusing how uh, the confessors throw in there the reference to the Pharisees, right, at the very end of what you read, uh, that if we accept the teaching of the Catholics, if we accept that, the, that by works of reason we merit forgiveness, then there's no difference between righteousness of Christians and righteousness of philosophers, and then he puts in there, or certainly of Pharisees. It's... it's uh, any child that has been listening to the gospel lessons can tell you who are the bad guys in, in this story, in these gospels. Oh, it's the Pharisees. They're always antagonizing Jesus and his disciples. And here they're qu- clearly drawing the line and saying, if this is true, if what the, the scholastic teachers are saying about what reason can accomplish and how Christ is a new lawgiver is true, then they are basically saying that Jesus was fighting against himself every time he disagreed with the Pharisees, which is, of course, absurd. And anybody who is hearing this confession can go, oh, yeah, I know, I might not know Aristotle, I might not know scholastics and uh, the righteousness of human reason, but I know the Pharisees. Indeed. All right, so for those listening in, if you've you've been a longtime listener of Concord Matters, you know we've been kind of going through this, and... So what you're hearing is when you're off on a little bit, so when when a few weeks back we started and we covered original sin, that is kind of anthropology. Um, You know, what is man? What is man after the fall? What is he capable of and so forth? We noted there that there were some severe differences, errors, uh, in particular that the Roman Catholic Church embraces about the abilities of man after the fall and so forth. Please go back and check out the archives of the show at kfuam.org because you'll find that those errors are directly linked to exactly what we're talking about here. The belief that man is somehow still capable, even, even just in the slightest bit, to take that step towards God and so forth, to, to do those little works. Uh, it, it robs from Jesus, and it, and it detracts from the chief article of the faith that man is saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus, and that Christ Jesus alone has merited the forgiveness of sins. And uh, you'll see that, you know, this is why when we talk as theologians, we talk about the body of doctrine, that it's all related to each other. So you get off in one part, and it tears away at another part. Uh, Just the same way that, you know, when one part of your body hurts, it can throw off your whole body. So, uh, as one who's fighting a cold right now, I fully understand that (laughs) principle. All right, so... Pastor Grevy, the stuff about meriting forgiveness, is this still Roman Catholic doctrine? Have they changed their teachings? Uh, they are still officially um, a, uh, essentially a grace plus works uh, in, in what they believe, teach, and confess. So the meriting of the forgiveness of sins uh, through the works has not changed. Uh, it's still there. 
in the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church um, in a grace plus works kind of fashion, which um, makes it um, actually more deceptive because they put grace in there, uh, but um, as soon as you have grace plus works equals salvation, it's still, it's still an error. Um, and that's in contrast uh, to, to we who believe, teach, and confess that it is grace apart from the works of the law by which we are saved, and that the good works uh, are for the purpose of showing forth faith. They are the evidence of faith, uh, but they are not the sealing of our salvation. And the good works are for the benefit of our neighbor. Uh, they're not for the benefit of God. Uh, they don't. Uh, God does not benefit from our good works, but our neighbor certainly does, and God commands us to do them as his people for the benefit of our neighbor. Right, right, and so and so, just like you know, the devil would quote scripture to Jesus, um, leaving out certain parts. Uh, so also, you know, the erring Roman Catholics would love to uh, use the same language, but of course, they redefine the words. Uh, not uncommon, as we see that happen all over in our culture and society today. Uh, that uh, that's a very common practice in order to distort and mislead, uh, much like the Pharisees of Jesus's day. Uh, kind of hijack that religion to uh, promote their own system of works righteousness. All right, so let's move on to paragraph 17. Yet the adversaries do not pass by Christ completely. They require a knowledge of the history about Christ. They credit him by writing that from his merit a way of life is given to us, or as they f say, first grace, prima gratia. They understand this as habit, inclining us to love God more readily. Yet, what they credit to this habit is of little importance, for they imagine that the human will's acts are the same before and after this habit. They imagine that the will can love God, but nevertheless, this habit stimulates it to love more cheerfully. They tell us, first, merit this habit by your earlier merits. Then they tell us we should merit an increase of this habit and life eternal by the works of the law. All right, so we've got just a little bit of time left before our hard break for the, for the top half of the hour. Let's just start looking at this. <clears throat> what, does, uh, what does all this mean, this first grace stuff? Um, what has Christ become? Or actually, better yet, let's go back to this habit idea. Pastor Moss, uh, can you explain this idea of habit? Well, I can try. Uh, this, uh, this habit, or in Latin, the habitus, is a, uh, a way of life. Um, and Scripture will often talk about uh, our way of life or our walk of life. Think about Psalm 1. Um, but here it is rather co-opted, because as we started with, we have human reason in this scholastic system, actually capable of keeping God's law and being righteous before him. So it's not like what the Lutherans had presented on original sin, that we are completely unable to do anything good. No, here it is, you are capable, you need to do it, and you can do it, and that is a message uh, that will ultimately lead people either to pride or despair. And as the, the confessors say here, 
by having this habit already established prior to conversion or prior to any first grace, it makes the first grace unimportant anyway. Exactly. All right, so we are looking at the, the break coming up here in just a little bit, and we're looking at the Augsburg Confession, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4. We've been covering paragraphs 12 through 16 so far. We're now discussing paragraph 17. Why we're discussing all this technical stuff? Because you need to know the gospel. You need to know the comfort of knowing that Christ alone has merited the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive that by having faith in him. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUAM Radio. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash jobsboard. Hey, Pastor Hawkinson, here's a good one. How did a turkey help older adults take control of their health? Well, wouldn't you like to know the answer? I can tell you that when he bowled three strikes during bowling for wellness, of course. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> yes. Sponsored by Lutheran Senior Services Affordable Housing, Bowling for Wellness is a yearly event that raises needed dollars for health and nutritional programs wellness kiosks, and parish nurses, all to help older adults take control of their health. On January 26th at 10 o'clock in the morning during Faith and Family, Lutheran Senior Services will be in studio to talk about this upcoming family-friendly event and its impact in our community. Get a sneak peek of the events and learn more about Bowling for Wellness at lssliving.org slash events. In 1924, we embraced the new technology of that day, radio. Since that day, we've stayed on the cutting edge of technology. There are many easy ways to listen to Worldwide KFUO. On the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the gospel of Christ in both word and song. Now that's why you should listen. The where and the how, well, that's up to you. The messenger of good news. Worldwide KFUO. We're all part of your community. We all play a role in keeping our community safe. So protect your every day. If you see something suspicious, say something to local authorities. On January 20th, 1945, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was inaugurated for an unprecedented fourth term as president. Just 83 days later, on April 12th, radio programs across the country were interrupted. Over the White House at Washington, the flag flies at half-staff as a grief-stricken nation mourns the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States. Inside in the historic cabinet room, Vice President Harry S. Truman takes the oath of office as President. And Vice President Harry S. Truman became the nation's 33rd President. In 1949, for his second oath of office, President Truman's hand rested on two Bibles, one used at his first swearing-in ceremony opened to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and a copy of the Gutenberg Bible, open to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Engage with the Bible in its influence in the history of a nation. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible.
Welcome back to Concord Matters. You're on the bottom of the hour at KFUO AM Radio. I am this week's host, Pastor Joshua Shear, Senior Pastor at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, coming to you from the snow-covered high plains of Wyoming. I have two guests with me today, Pastor Matt Moss, Pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church of Klinger and St. Paul Lutheran Church of Redland, Iowa, and Pastor Mike Grevy, Pastor of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Golden, Illinois. Uh, we are in the middle of discussing the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4. In particular, we were discussing Paragraph 17 right before the break. We started talking about this uh, Roman Catholic notion, uh, this imagination thing, this dreamt-up uh, fake stuff called first grace and habit and so forth. So the idea is, of course, you, you can't just take Jesus out of everything. Um, that's too direct. Uh, instead, of course, you gotta, you got to at least talk about Jesus a little bit, because we're going to be Christians, so we're going to talk about Christ. And so in this system of earning your salvation, Jesus is going to be involved. And so this is what it's describing, that they, they can't just pass by Jesus on his own. Instead, they're going to bring him back in. And so we see that here, described in that, uh, so a person does civically good uh, earn some righteousness by ways of their own reason, then Christ gives this gift, this this first grace, uh, this habit, um, which then enables the, the person to then love God more readily, more cheerfully, as it puts it here. And then, of course, please God that much more by doing the same kind of works uh, to, to fulfill the works of the law. Now, Pastor Moss, what does this do to Jesus? I mean, what is this whole system of works, and then we're going to throw a little Jesus in there, and then we'll do the same kind of works, and eventually you'll get enough that maybe, well, we're going to come into it in a second, that you really never should be sure that you're, you've done enough. Uh, but, I mean, what does this do to Jesus? Well, it makes him, first and foremost, a historical figure, um, one that they would learn about, uh, but merely as an example to follow, or even maybe a benchmark to reach up to without, you know, ever fully achieving his level of perfection and greatness. And uh, as the next paragraph, 18, is going to say they essentially bury him. Uh, all sorts of religions and even political movements have kind of a chief leader or figurehead, an example to follow, and m many times those people will even die for their cause and spur more people on after them to follow in their example. Uh, and that's all Jesus really is then, is this uh, motivating example who by his, his death, again, if he's buried, he's not risen yet, although that's a different topic, but by his death he just motivates us, uh, infuses us with this, uh, this habit, this grace substance to want to do better, to be more cheerful about doing the good, because we have this example of how it can look. So is this like Jesus becomes my life coach? More or less, yeah. Uh, not just in, in the coaching sense of he gives you words and laws, uh, which is what they would look to for uh, his teachings, but then also a life coach in his example, uh, an example that you can't possibly live up to, but... If you think you are, if you think you're getting better and better and more cheerful and cheerful about living in this uh, imitation of Christ, then you're going to reach a certain level of 
pride and security that is ultimately even more dangerous than uh, the despair and guilt of having fallen short. So as I'm hearing it, this is, you know, we're obviously addressing the Roman Catholic error, but, but I, I hear this in kind of the Reformed confessions as well, where, where the focus is upon, you know, yeah, Jesus is there to kind of get you over the hump, but then after that you're kind of on your own to prove that you're one of the saints and so forth. Um, so that's kind of included in this too. So, all right. So let's move on to paragraph 18, and we'll read that. Um, in this way, they bury Christ so that people may not benefit from him as a mediator and believe that they freely receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation for his sake. They let people dream that by their own fulfillment of the law, they merit forgiveness of sins, that by their own fulfillment of the law, they are counted righteous before God. However, the law is never satisfied, since reason does nothing except certain civil works. In the meantime, a person neither fears God nor truly believes that God cares. Although they speak about this habit, God's love cannot exist in, his, in a person without the righteousness of faith, nor can his love be understood. All right, so paragraph 18 here starts out, lays out kind of a different contrast here, as you mentioned earlier, Pastor Moss. Um, this idea of Christ as a mediator versus kind of Christ as a, works rewarder slash motivator uh, i don't know what you'd want to call it uh pastor gravy how dangerous is this teaching it's very dangerous because uh it's it's uh, deceiving in that it makes us out to be if you will a co-mediator or maybe even uh co-redeemer uh which christ does not share his redemption with us in that way as co-redeemers Rather, he uh, redeems us fully by his blood, which he shed on the cross, and then we we share uh, in his in his life. Uh, that is to say, in the new life that he's given us, which will ultimately uh, find its fulfillment in our resurrection on the last day. So he doesn't. So if we kind of. Um, you know, you, you gave that life coach example, you know, it's kind of this me and Jesus, we're walking together and we're working together to get towards salvation, to get to salvation. Um, that's, that's very dangerous because, um, as uh, Pastor Moss was saying, uh, that does uh, definitely lead to pride. And uh, pride is one of the most dangerous sins uh, that the Bible points out. Yeah, and in fact, as we get to the next paragraph, we're going to talk about not only the secure, uh, secure hypocrisy, but then also, which would be pride, or, or it will be despair, uh, which is the other end of that spectrum where a person finally realizes that they can't do this. Now, I will point out here in paragraph 18, the Lutheran confessors cannot hold back from actually confessing the truth. You know, that they say that, you know, believe that they freely receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation for his sake, you know. This is what the Lutheran Confessions are about, bestowing the gospel to you, comforting your conscience, letting you know what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, it makes that point. Even when we're in the middle of discussing this technical Roman Catholic error, um, they're going to make sure that the truth is confessed. Now, Pastor Moss, in paragraph 18, towards the last half of this, it talks a little bit about 
The law is never satisfied since reason does nothing except certain civil works. In the meantime, a person neither fears God nor truly believes that God cares. What is this discussing? What, what is this bringing up here about a person in this system? That they really don't fear God or, or really believe that he cares. Right. So what the human reason can actually comprehend about who God is and what his law is, and maybe even what the consequences would be for breaking it, is actually really limited. You know, all along here we've been talking about how the human reason can accomplish certain things. It can prevent you from murder. It can, you know, human reason can tell you it's a good thing to help a guy who's, you know, hurt on the side of the road. But actually, the things that the law really demands are above human reason are outside of its capability. True fear for God, true trust in God, to truly know who God is and what he uh, desires of us. Human reason cannot uh, satisfy that level of law, and it doesn't really comprehend it either. So the person uh, walking through life does not fear God because he thinks, I haven't murdered, I haven't stolen, I don't beat my wife like all those other drunks in town do, so I'm actually pretty good. So he doesn't fear God, because by reason, he looks good compared to other people. And he thinks that God doesn't care, because when you do look around at all those other people, all those other sinners who are worse than you, they usually don't get punished directly by a lightning bolt from sky scorching them, right? So it looks as if God gives the same rewards to the righteous and the unrighteous, to sinners and those who are, in a civil sense, keeping the law. So it seems as if God shows no partiality in his punishment, in his wrath, and in his uh, terrors of conscience. Uh, so this is where human reason, although it thinks so highly of itself and what it can accomplish with this law, it misses the whole picture entirely. Yeah, so, so like by way of contrast and comparison here, this idea that God cares. Now compare these two systems of theology, right? In the one system, uh, you know, you've got some abilities, and so you start working, and then, you know, God maybe looks down on you and sees you trying really hard, and you did a few good things right, civilly, civilly or something like that. And so kind of out of a, being agreeable, God kind of just looks at you and goes, oh, okay, and maybe pats you on the head and then gives you a little bit more so that way you can do some more, uh, some more good or something like that. On the other side of the spectrum, you have a God who takes on human flesh, actively is obedient to the law, fulfilling all of its demands in both thought, word, and deed. A God who then suffers passively. A God who then bleeds and dies. I mean, which example here shows you what, what, what care God has taken for you? Um, this, is, this is the chief and great error that we're talking about here. I mean, the, the kind of God that comes through this system of works righteousness is not the God of the Scriptures. It's not the God that comes down and, and promises to deliver and to save. And this is the chief difference. So, okay, the question is, the last part of this, God's love cannot exist in a person without the righteousness of faith. Pastor Grevy, can you explain this a little further, that God's love can't exist in a person without the righteousness of faith? The epistle to the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews says, um, without faith it is impossible to please him. So um, love 
cannot and does not exist in us without this faith, uh, which, first of all, is a gift uh, that we've been given, uh, not by our own merits or works. Uh, It is a gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, lest any man should boast. It is by the grace of God that we have this gift of faith. And um, there is righteousness attached to that gift. So we are, we are credited with um, this righteousness of faith uh, that we haven't given to ourselves, but Christ has given it to us. God so loved the world that he gave, he sacrificed his only son. Uh, and so that uh, whoever believes in him, uh, there's the righteousness of faith, uh, will not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's love uh, dwelling in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the faith that we've been given, that's the righteousness of faith, which, without which, uh, we don't have God's love, and and we cannot have it, and we cannot understand his love. Um, But with that righteousness of faith, um, we can understand his love by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That, That is how important... Uh, the gift of faith is, literally. It is the difference between um, having God's love and uh, not having it. Excellent. Thank you. I think Pastor Moss mentioned this a little earlier, too, about this, uh, you know, the corruption and so forth is so bad we don't even understand uh, that unless this is revealed to us, unless this is given to us, we don't even understand this. So you're dealing with, you know, reason, which is not going to understand God's love. uh, It's not going to have it without faith in Christ, then giving you the righteousness of faith. All right, so this is why they've been using the language of dreams and imaginations and and kind of delusional language about this uh, so-called teaching about how people become righteous in God's eyes by their own works. Um, These silly, uh, silly notions that come up. All right, let's go on to paragraph 19. They make up a distinction between due merit and true, complete merit. Meritum congrui and meritum condigni. This is only a tactic, so that they do not appear to agree openly with the Pelagians. If God must give grace for the due merit, it is no longer due merit, but a true duty and complete merit. They do not know what they are saying. After this habit of love is in a person, they imagine that such a person can gain merit in a wholly deserving way, de condigno. Yet they tell us to doubt whether there is a habit present. Therefore, how do they know whether they gain merit in a merely agreeable way or in a wholly deserving way? All right, so there's a lot in here. First off, Pastor Moss, would you talk to us? What's a Pelagian? <laughs> uh, Pelagianism was a, an ancient heresy of the Church uh, that taught um, that man completely saves himself. I mean, real Pelagianism, God wasn't even involved in the salvation. It wasn't uh, 50-50 or, you know, 90 and 10. It was all mankind's work. Uh, St. Augustine, over a thousand years before Luther, had really put this down with his teaching. Um, So it, it was well known. Everybody who's hearing the confessors talk about this would know what they're referring to and why the, this Roman Catholic teaching smacks of 
if not full-blown Pelagianism, we save ourselves entirely, at least a semi-Pelagianism where it's mostly man's work and a little bit of God's spark or help with it. So again, this is like trying to bring Jesus' name back into it because, of course, if you leave it out, everybody's going to just know right off the hand. And so we're going to guard ourselves against full-out Pelagianism by kind of doing a crypto, a hidden-away Pelagianism, or as you said, semi-Pelagianism. So, yeah. All right. So, then it makes this distinction between uh, due merit and true merit, which, of course, the Lutheran confessors see through right away because uh, there's no difference there, uh, <laughs> other than, of course, in their quote-unquote timeline of their system of salvation. Um, but as the confessors say, this is this is stuff made up by idle men. Uh, this is... This is stuff that's come up with by men who are not uh, busy with God's work and his word, but instead coming up with new systems of, of all kinds of things, which, of course, follow the natural religion of man, that is, the religion of doing things. But then, towards the end of this paragraph 19, it goes on to say, they tell us to doubt whether there is a habit present. So wait a second, Pastor Grevy not only are they now, okay, yeah, you, you earn it, and then this habit comes, and then you are even more cheerfully and more uh, readily able to do it in a more, you know, deserving way, holy and so forth, complete and so forth. But now they're telling us, the other, the other part of the system is to make sure you doubt it, that you doubt the habit. Now, uh, what is this coming from? And, and I mean, this is obviously, I mean, not of God. God wants you to be sure of your salvation. But uh, what's this this idea, doubt? I mean, what's the advantage to the Roman Catholic Church of keeping people in this doubt? Well, the only thing that I can and think of on this, and, uh, and maybe uh, Pastor Moss uh, will know more, is that if you, if you can keep people in that state of doubt... Uh, then you can keep them working to try to merit the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, if you keep someone in a perpetual state of doubt uh, in which they're, they don't have comfort, uh, they don't have the assurance that it is by grace alone, well, then you, then you have, um, you know, this constant notion that you need to do more works or different works, uh, come up with, uh, invent some new ones uh, to try to awaken the habit uh, within. Uh, that's that's the best that I can I can think of there, Pastor. True, here. true. So, Pastor Moss, uh, we kind of skipped over it, but can you explain a little bit to the listeners about this true or this this due merit and true merit? I know that's a translation of the the congrui and the condigni. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it quick since we're coming up to the end, and we don't want this to be the last word we learn about, <laughs> right? Um, Correct. So this, this is a completely academic distinction. This is what happens when scholastic professors who are out of the parish and not dealing with real people have to come up with some distinction to make their system of theology work. They divide up these two terms, uh, due merit and true merit. I apologize if over the phone and radio that doesn't sound too... Uh, clear, uh, due merit or uh, congruent merit is what you do before conversion, before you have this um, first grace from Jesus. 
so this would be a uh, a person who is an alcoholic who abuses his wife and steals from his boss, realizes that's probably not a good way to live. He'll lose his job, he'll lose his wife, he might go to jail, so he stops. He thinks good people go to church, I'm going to go to church. And on account of this due merit, this merit of congruity, God generously rewards him with that habitus, that first grace, that now he realizes how much he actually likes not beating his wife and not becoming a drunk and not stealing, and so he wants to do it more readily and cheerfully, and apart from the fact that he has not even once heard the gospel in all of this, let alone believed it, he is now uh, doing true works and true complete merits. This would be the merit of condignity, that because the, the, uh, the first grace from Jesus has sparked his cheerfulness over these works, he is now doing more and more works towards his own salvation. So... Exactly. Do merit comes before the the first grace, and then all these other true merits that earn salvation come after that first grace. But both before and after, it's the man's works. So for those listening in, going, you know, maybe scratching your heads if you're if you're able to or whatever it would be, that's that's exactly the point that the confessions are making. That this is this is a totally uh, made up system. That makes no sense whatsoever. Totally contrived by people who apparently had time on their hands or something like that, or other motivations. And so so here it is. Paragraph 20. This whole matter was made up by idle men. They did not know how forgiveness of sins happens and how, by God's judgment and the terrors of conscience, trust in works is driven out of us. Secure hypocrites always judge that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way, whether the habit is present or is not present because people naturally trust in their own righteousness. But terrified consciences waver and hesitate. Then they seek and heap up other works in order to find peace. Such consciences never think that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way, and they rush into despair unless they hear, in addition to the teaching of the law, the gospel about free forgiveness of sins and righteousness of faith. All right, this will be our last paragraph that we'll cover this hour. So we only have about four minutes left of our show today. Uh, Pastor Grevy, can you explain this a little bit further, this idea, secure hypocrites, terrified consciences, natural man, you know, this is all kind of natural system, natural theology is what we're hearing about, in, con- in, in contrast to true theology, which is law, gospel, sin, forgiveness, and so forth. Can you do that? Yes, well, the, the hypocrites uh, really exemplify uh, the proud. Um, pride, this really gives us the two spectrums, uh, pride and despair. Uh, the hypocrite always believes, uh, really he never believes that he's a sinner, never, doesn't believe that he has sin. He always believes that he can do it, whether he has the habit or not. He, can, he, can, he trusts in his own righteousness, and he heaps up more and more works uh, to try to prove it. Uh, the despairing um, reaches a point where he sees that his works have not been good enough, but then still tries to heap up other works in order to find peace, but doesn't find peace in those either, and so comes to despair. Uh, both are dangerous. 
uh, and ultimately both need the law and the gospel, because only through that kind of brings us back to what should be in a sermon. Um, preaching is about preaching the a true exposition of God's Word in law and gospel, uh, and that's, for, that's both uh, for the proud and, to, and for the despairing. Uh, and so those are really the two, the two spectrums that are at opposite ends of each other here. Um, need to hear that we haven't done enough and we can't, and that uh, Jesus has won for us the free forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of faith. Excellent. Thank you, Pastor Grevy, and uh, thank you, Pastor Moss. You, you note here, just this is why we Lutherans do our theology. This is why we have this radio show. This is why we have the Book of Concord, is that you would know the errors of, of being a secure hypocrite that is comfortable in your works, thinking that you've achieved something, or the, the one who's terrified in your conscience, who realizes no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to get ahead. You just can't seem to, to do the right thing always. And of course, uh, Roman Catholic theology would have you point back to your works and, and different systems like this crazy made-up stuff. But Lutherans, uh, like the Scriptures, confess to you both the law, which will lay you low as far as showing you the true hypocrisy that you have, but then it brings you the sweet gospel, this gospel, the forgiveness of your sins that has been given to you freely because of Christ, and that the righteousness of faith is yours when you believe in Christ Jesus. So if you get a chance this weekend, go to a Lutheran church, uh, participate in worship, hear the gospel. Uh, let those things ring true in your ear. You've been listening to Concord Matters. I'm this week's host, Pastor Joshua Shear, wishing you the Lord's blessings as you go on through your week.